this week in KMA Land. Final score, severe storms 2, KMA Land nothing. High winds topple trees and power lines in Shenandoah. Wild Wednesday night follows weekend weather. Stabbing incidents, school threats, shock residents, and Shank Lake renovation plans unveiled. I'm Mike Peterson. Severe storm season arrived in earnest in KMA land this week as residents dealt with two separate incidents, each bringing a different twist. Strong winds and tree damage were the main features of a potent storm system moving through the region late last Friday night into Saturday. Katie Grove is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service's Valley, Nebraska office. Grove told KMA News Shenandoah was among the communities pummeled by high winds from the storm cells. Shenandoah area got hit pretty hard with some strong winds. We had several gusts up to uh, 50 to 60 miles an hour across the area that did a little bit of damage to some uh, trees and buildings. Um, and then we also got quite a bit of rain across the area. Um, for southeast Nebraska and southwest Iowa, locations kind of south of I-80 got anywhere from uh, about an inch to three inches in some spots. Tree damage was evident all over Shenandoah. Perhaps the worst damage was found on Church Street, where large limbs lay across the yards of two residences. Stephen Liebsack was relaxing at home at 405 Church Street when high winds rudely interrupted his evening. I think I was laying on my bed. I heard the strong winds blowing, and uh, then all of a sudden I felt the house shake a little bit, and it was a little concerning, big old house, and it shaking a little bit. Didn't think too much of it, and the power went out. I kind of looked out the window, but you couldn't see a whole lot, uh, except for when the lightning was striking. So I didn't really notice anything was wrong until I got up this morning, and I came out here and saw uh, the mess that we have behind me. Fortunately, friends arrived to assist with massive cleanup efforts. They, we have a good, good group of friends that uh, we're willing to help each other out all the time, and so this is one of those times where... I get to be on the benefit of that. Despite the damage, Leapsack found a silver lining. I've been wanting to take this tree down, but my wife has been fighting me on it. Um, I don't know if this is actually going to benefit me by taking it down, but the good thing is nothing hurt the house, so uh, it's just yard cleanup that we got, and so I'm blessed in that. Residences weren't the only places with toppled trees. Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman told KMA News the storm shattered trees in the city's park. I'm talking to our park and rec director, Kevin Olson. Uh, Priest Park seems to have gotten the worst of our damage. I mean, we've got some sticks and limbs and stuff down in all the parks, but uh, Priest Park seemed to have gotten hit the worst. Uh, there's a tree by the gazebo that needs to come out of there. They'll be getting to that as, as quick as they can. Damage was also visible at Sportsman's Park, where winds knocked down both trees and soccer goals. Lyman says Shenandoah Golf Course also sustained heavy storm damage. Fortunately, scores of volunteers participated in cleanup efforts. Luckily, um, you know, there was quite a bit of uh, volunteer support out there to help uh, get it all cleaned up. I've uh, made some great progress over those two days. And the, I know the greenskeeper, uh, Craig Greg Connell and uh, all the folks that were out there helping out uh, were greatly appreciated. High winds also caused power outages in Shenandoah not only Friday night, but a few days later. Roughly 1,200 Mid-American Energy customers lost, lost electricity shortly after 6.20 Sunday evening. Mid-American spokesman Jeff Greenwood tells KMA News the outage was centered in the vicinity of Southview Boulevard and South Center Street. We sent a crew out to determine what had happened, and they found that a jumper cable, uh, which is a component that connects overhead lines, had broken just uh, right around Southview Boulevard. And they uh, were able to restore more than half of those customers by just after 
9 o'clock last night, but they had to work for many more hours to restore all customers. Power was restored to the remaining customers at around 4.45 Monday morning. Greenwood says the outage is believed to be connected to Friday night severe storms, which pummeled the community with high winds. It's an overhead line that broke. It's a connector that connects two overhead lines that broke. And we experienced a lot of that over the weekend. We had a combination of uh, severe weather. We had several waves of thunderstorms. Additionally, we had just sustained high winds throughout the weekend. And it really caused a lot of uh, incidents to occur throughout our service area in southwest Iowa, western Iowa, northwest and then uh, all parts to the east, all the way to the Quad City. Just as most of KMA land had recovered from last weekend's bout, another round of severe weather roared through the region Wednesday night, bringing a little bit of everything. The National Weather Service placed all of KMA land under a tornado watch at around 3.45 p.m. That was followed by continuous severe thunderstorm and tornado warnings as strong storm cells moved from southeast Nebraska through southwest Iowa and into northwest Missouri. Dave Pearson, meteorologist with the National Weather Service's Valley, Nebraska office, says it was a long night. We've had uh, a pretty significant line of storms, slow moving at times, progressed through the area. And with it, we've seen uh, a myriad of, of hazards, hail, obviously heavy rain. And we also had some tornado reports. Um, come in here and there, too, that we're looking at. Funnel clouds and tornado touchdowns reported in Fremont County. Deputy Fremont County Emergency Management Coordinator Clayton Long tells KMA News storm activity rolled into his county from Oto County. As the night progressed, thanks to the National Weather Service out of Omaha, uh, early detection, we knew there was rotation south of Nebraska City. It was three miles south of Nebraska City, moving northeast at 35 miles an hour, so all of our storm spotters, trained storm spotters and uh, fire departments went out and posted at various locations strategically throughout the county so that we could have uh, an overview of the situation. Long and other spotters tracked one developing tornado near Percival. At about 8.35, 8.45 time frame, there was a rotation visible from my location and a couple other spotter locations, and we saw a brief touchdown northeast of Percival, about a mile or so. Uh, that's when it was getting real dark and we were waiting for lightning flashes to illuminate it in the sky. We had tracked that one moving along Bluff Road, or I was on Bluff Road moving north. By the time it got to about Thurman, it had picked itself back up and it was still rotating until it got to about the Mills County line and then it seemed to have fallen off. Tornado touchdowns were also reported by the National Weather Service near Sydney and Thurman. No damage was reported. Funnel clouds were also reported in Montgomery County, where County Emergency Management Coordinator Brian Hammond personally witnessed one attempting to form. Initially, when I came out, uh, we were monitoring the storms that were in south of Malvern and Hastings and kind of followed that. And you could definitely see the cloud structure and rotation at times. And then as it moved northeast into Montgomery County, we followed it north and just south of Wales. It, Dropped several funnel clouds within about two-minute time frame, but luckily nothing appeared to have touched the ground. And so far, no damage reports. Hammond says Montgomery County was lucky not to receive the horrific hail reported in other parts of the region, especially Mills County. Gay Barney is the county's emergency management coordinator. Barney says hail fell in various shapes and sizes and caused considerable damage in some areas. That uh, first round went through. We had reports kind of in Glenwood of ping pong size hail coming through. A little bit of damage there on cars, roofs, 
no large cleanup efforts on that end. And as the storm started moving east, going to Malvern, those started to kind of pick up a little bit, and there was uh, some extensive damage on, same thing, roofs, cars. We got reports of tennis ball size hail, and that lasted for a little bit. Barney says some rotation was spotted in his county as well, but no actual touchdowns. There was some rotation that we, the National Weather Service saw on radar and some storm spotters saw possibly some rotations going through. No large development in our county for funnel clouds or any touchdowns or anything, but uh, everyone was definitely on edge from all the warnings that were going out. Another round of severe weather generated more heavy rainfall early Thursday morning. In fact, officials say the rainfall amounts, two to three inches in some areas, provided a silver lining that had helped the area's continuing drought conditions. Two incidents this week served as a reminder to KMA land residents that it's not immune to acts of violence and school threats. One incident occurred in Sydney Monday where one person was killed and another injured in a stabbing incident at 508 Main Street. An autopsy conducted by the state medical examiner's office in Ankeny determined that 26-year-old Corey Miller of Sydney died from stab wounds as a result of a homicide. A second stabbing victim, identified as 28-year-old DeAndre Kyle of Sydney, remains in stable condition at Nebraska Medicine in Omaha. In addition, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation says two people are charged in connection with a search warrant executed at that location Monday. The Fremont County Sheriff's Office arrested 26-year-old Mark Dupree and 23-year-old Caitlin Jacobs, both of Sydney, at separate locations on drug charges. The DCI says the investigation into the incident continues and no further information was released. The second incident involved alleged threats made against students and staff in the Southwest Valley schools. Extra security was placed at schools in Corning and Villisca in connection with an incident late last week in which the Adams County Sheriff's Office and Southwest Valley Superintendent Chris Fenster were notified of a student allegedly threatening to harm other students and staff at Southwest Valley High School in Corning. Following an Adams County Sheriff's Office investigation, the student was charged with threat of terrorism, barred from school grounds, and placed on GPS monitoring by the Sheriff's Office and Juvenile Court Services. Late Monday afternoon, Fenster notified the Sheriff's Office regarding threatening posts on social media by the same student. The Adams County Sheriff's Office, collaborating with the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, investigated the alleged threats, but determined there was no evidence deeming them credible. Some Clarinda residents want new life in a longtime recreational area. Members of the Clarinda Youth Corporation announced plans to renovate Schenck Field at a special presentation at Clarinda's Lead Public Library Thursday afternoon. CYC Board Chair Shira Brighty has fond memories of the lake as a youth. As a small child and into my teen years, I can remember spending a lot of quality time with my parents, family, and friends at Shank Lake, boating, swimming, skiing, and ice skating. Now, Bridie and other CYC board members want to make the lake a destination for future generations. The CYC's dream is to bring life back into the Shank Lake grounds for public use for everyone in Clorinda, the surrounding communities, and also for visitors staying a while or just passing through. And this project would certainly give everyone a reason to enjoy our community, Clorinda, just a little bit more. Former State Representative Richard Anderson serves as the CYC's board president. Anderson says the board wants to take the next step in the lake's development. A number of years ago, the Shank family put the property up for sale and the Clorinda Youth Corporation purchased it. Uh, the intent was to use it as an outdoor classroom 
for the community and for the students at the Clorinda Academy. And that wasn't maximized to the extent that we thought it would be as a board. And as time progressed, we've continued to improve the lake, uh, or the, the trail around it, make it more accessible, a little more suitable for um, public access. CYC officials plan to work with the Golden Hills RC&D to secure grant money for the project. In this week's episode of As the Turbine Turns, Page County officials continued the painstaking review of the county's wind energy ordinance. Meeting in regular session Thursday evening, the Page County Board of Supervisors held a public discussion on amending setback and height requirements contained in the county's wind ordinance. Discussion comes nearly six weeks after the board identified several target areas of the ordinance to review, opting to take up the review in sections. After hearing from multiple residents, the supervisors settled on a consensus of a one-mile setback from the property line of non-participating landowners. Supervisors Chair Jacob Holmes says that puts non-participating landowners in a similar setback zone as county parks and city limits under the current ordinance and allows non-participants to waive the setback if they choose. Given the, the mile the same as we already had the ordinance for the parks and for the cities with the right to waive, will cause everyone to be talked to before anything is any plan is put together. And so if they if they come, everyone will know and everyone will be safe and we will have done our duty. Supervisor Todd Maher backed the second proposed setback regulations, saying they give everyone in the county a choice. Where we're trying to set a precedent is protecting non-participating landowners that don't have a choice. They don't want to have them impeding on their property. If you have, you know, I don't know if you have 600 acres and you want to put two of these things on there and they're you know, 1,200 feet from your house, I guess that's your prerogative. Additionally, the supervisors agreed on a height limit of 300 feet from the ground to the tip of the wind turbine blade. Holmes says the new regulations will present a more level playing field for landowners and wind companies. Everyone's talked to if people choose to do this, and no one has ran over, then that's their right. We can't run over anybody, and, and the status quo should always take precedence. The way it is, that's where the mile setback is. The status quo is there's no curbing. So it should be more difficult for people. One person shouldn't be allowed to come in and change everything on everyone. Right. You've got to talk to everybody, and if, if uh, they all come to that conclusion or are willing to be in liability, then we've, they've chosen that on their own. We have not put them there. The supervisors plan to address other topics related to the wind energy ordinance in future public meetings, including dealing with safety issues, noise, setbacks from right-of-way, and buried feeder cables at next Thursday's meeting. Holmes says once all of the targeted areas have been addressed, the county will take the items to legal counsel to be implemented into the existing ordinance. Once we get the big topics done, like Todd said, then we can go through the... The work legal, give it to legal and say, here's what we want woven into this to make sure it all meshes and is cohesive with itself. Page County currently has a moratorium in place on any new wind turbine project applications pending review of the current ordinance. After months of work, Montgomery County officials Tuesday completed the arduous task of formulating the county's budget for next fiscal year. By unanimous vote, the county's Board of Supervisors approved the fiscal 2024 budget. Board members then sent compensation for elected officials for the new fiscal year beginning July 1st, 
which entails a 7.5% increase for the county sheriff, 6% increases for the county auditor, recorder, and treasurer, and 4.8% increases for the supervisors. Members of the county's compensation board recommended a 15% increase for the county sheriff and 12% for other elected officials. Supervisor Donna Robinson says the board looked at all different options in contemplating elected officials' pay hikes. It was brought up possibility of this board taking no increase. Mm -hmm. And fine. the next day we came back and we said we felt like we would be making a statement. It would be not that much of a cost savings. And if we keep this as low as it is, as time goes on, there's going to be very few people that are going to want to run to this office. So we made an adjustment from 6% to 4.8. Robinson says it's important to be upfront with the public on those conversations. There's lots of different ways of looking at this. And I think it's important that maybe we share some of the discussions. We sat here in meetings through two to three weeks trying to figure out the answers and what's best for the county and what's best and the best ways to be stewards of the, of the tax dollars that we were taking in. Supervisor Charlotte Smith defended the supervisor's salary decisions. There's a lot of work and time involved, even going out of town. You know, meetings in Atlantic, meetings in Creston. There's, you know, meetings in Council Bluffs. You know, we, we do spend a lot of time. In other business, in the special evening meeting, the board set the county's mileage reimbursement rate at 60.5 cents per mile at a resolution for the county's opioid settlement totaling an estimated $100,000. The Iowa Public Information Board this week dismissed a citizen's complaint against the city of Hamburg for withholding public records after an informal resolution was reached in the case. During the IPIB's monthly meeting Thursday, the board heard an update on a case originally brought last June by Kevin Johnson. In the complaint, Johnson alleged the city failed to provide requested public records related to grant money from the Missouri River flooding of 2019. As a result of that disaster, vast amounts of state and federal disaster relief money was made available to the city. What became apparent to the citizens most impacted by the flood was that the recipients of a lot of those funds were people that were not impacted by the flood and had connections to city employees or were on the city council. That was the reason for my initial request for public records from the city of Hamburg to see where that money went and how it was determined who received it. In November, the IPIB approved an informal resolution to the case, which included stipulations that the city acknowledged their failure to respond to the request in a timely manner and develop a policy for responding to future records requests. Also in the informal resolution was a requirement for the city to attempt to locate any records that would satisfy the original request. IPIB Deputy Director Brent Torsdahl says Johnson and the city dispute that the part of the resolution was carried out adequately. You know, it's one of those situations that, uh, well, either the city didn't keep good records or some of these records were in the possession of former mayor who also, according to the, the attorney, assures the attorney that she searched her device for email. He's basically claiming assurance from everyone. Um, and that they've got it and basically is refusing to look any deeper because if, if uh, they've got the records otherwise, that's fine. Johnson says the city provided emails, uh, 34 emails in total, pertaining to grant funding. Johnson says he placed a similar request with the Iowa Economic Development Authority, who provided him with 168 emails pertaining to Hamburg. I believe that the Iowa Economic Development Committee fully searched and gave me everything in their possession. 
I cannot be sure that the city of Hamburg has done the same. And not just to the IE, the Iowa Economic Development Committee, I asked for any any grant monies, and they had more grants that just came from the Iowa Economic Development Committee. So if I've, they've proven to me that they haven't given me everything sent there, so why should I believe them that they provided anything else that I've asked for? In other cases, before the board involving KMA land, the board dismissed a complaint by Richard Altman against the Fremont County Auditor of withholding confidential documents and dismissed a complaint following an informal resolution brought by Clint Fichter against the city of Avoca related to fees for accessing public documents. In a legislative session filled with controversial measures, one bill is raising eyebrows. It involves implementing tougher regulations for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits. Among other things, the bill would put a $15,000 limit on assets for Iowa households to remain eligible for SNAP benefits, excluding the value of a home car and up to $10,000 of the value of the second car. Another provision requires eligible households to earn less than 160% of the federal poverty level and to submit information through a computerized eligibility verification system before collecting SNAP and Medicaid benefits. Despite the shifting of qualifications, State Representative Devin Woods says the state's guidelines are still less stringent than federal administration guidelines. The New Market Republican made her remarks on KMA's Morning Line program this week. One of those examples would be, for example, the vehicles. You know, our federal guideline is you can go as low as a vehicle worth somewhere around the, I believe it's $4,500 mark. This bill allows you to have a first vehicle of any value and then a second vehicle up to $10,000. So there's one of those, you know, amendment portions that is now in this bill. Wood says the bill also provides excellent resources for real-time eligibility checkpoints. So when you're applying for this, if you qualify for some other, you know, assistance that, that we can offer or federally can be offered, you will know that immediately when applying and can you can not only see what you, you qualify for in SNAP benefits, but it can also help you, you know, see what you qualify in, you know, Medicaid as well. The bill passed in the Iowa House by a 58 to 41 vote last week. Other KMA land lawmakers voting in favor included State Representatives Tom Moore, David Seek, and Ray Bubba Sorensen. State Representative Josh Turek voted against it. The Council Bluffs Democrat tells KMA News he was disappointed with his GOP colleagues supported the bill and called the measure morally reprehensible. We're basically just going to restrict food, basic nutrition from poor children, disabled individuals, the elderly, veterans, which that in itself is enough of a reason to vote against this. Beyond that, just the financial implications. The fact is that all of this food, 100% is paid for from the feds. There's zero benefit to Iowa taxpayers in, in restricting these benefits. According to a nonpartisan study of the bill through the Legislative Services Agency, the state, which splits administering costs for the federal government, will save $7.8 million annually beginning in fiscal year 2027, but would also lose nearly $42 million in federal funds allocated to Iowans through the assistance program. However, Turek dismissed the talking point of this bill, potentially removing able-bodied individuals from the assistance program and back into the workforce, citing numbers from the U.S. Department of Agriculture showing over 66% of SNAP benefits have children, 
while over 46% of SNAP receiving households contain at least one person with a disability. We're only looking at 15% of the individuals that are on SNAP that aren't seniors, that don't have children, that aren't disabled. How in the world this is going to benefit or have any sort of job growth component is beyond me. And, and I, I think that's just a talking point, a political talking point. Again, this idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We don't want any individuals on the program. Additionally, Turek says the limit on a second vehicle doesn't make sense as individuals need reliable cars, particularly in rural areas. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a production of KMA News.